Good morning. My name is Ben Steele. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of James. Please follow along in your Bibles, or you can use the screens. I'll be reading from James chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 from the New International Version. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God, against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that his jealousy, that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Kent Lotus, and I am not one of the pastors here. I'm the rookie member of the leadership team. I started uh, just last July. But I've actually been a member here a long time. In fact, next month uh, is my 40th anniversary of attending this church. And uh, it's an exciting time to be part of this congregation. Uh, I've, I've seen a lot of tough times, a lot of wonderful things. I've been in love with this church for 40 years. But the things I see happening now are just exciting for me. There's a buzz about the place that I haven't seen, I don't think, ever. Uh, it's a delight to see so many faces I don't know. That, to me, is a good sign. So last spring, when I got the invitation to join the leadership team, I thought, oh, this is, this is cool. I get to be a part of the cool, crazy new things that we're going to be doing in the years ahead. Um, and in the midst of that, I was driving home one evening praying about the decision to join the team, and had pretty much said, yes, this is what I think I need to do. But I felt, I was wondering, so what exactly do I mean when I talk about crazy cool things happening in, in this church? And this phrase came to me, and it came with such clarity and intensity that I had to pull over because I started crying. And the phrase was this, is it really that crazy? to think that maybe, just maybe, our church can be a place where racial reconciliation happens in fresh, new, authentic ways that are helpful to us and to our community. 
Now, just to be clear, this has not been a thing for me. I'm not one of these social justice warriors. I'm a software engineer over on the east side. I want my quiet little life. But this has been weighing on my heart, and it's coming to a place where I think there's action to be had. And just a couple of days later, not having talked to Peter, he sent me a little email and saying, hey, once you're on the LT, how'd you like to be point person for diversity? And I thought, oh, well, okay, there's, there's definitely something going on here. Um, since then, I've been doing a lot of reading, a lot of paying attention to what's going on in the world, more so than I had before. I've had some conversations with some of you that have really touched some deep places in my soul. In, P in uh, August, Peter preached in Ecclesiastes 4 on racial oppression. He gave us some language to start moving forward on this and coming together and creating space and safety to have this be something we talk about. Did you know that that sermon is the single most downloaded sermon on our website? That, to me, speaks something about what's happening in our church. And a few weeks after that, I was thinking about, okay, where do, where do we go next? What happens next in our church? And I thought, I think that the next conversation about this, the next message on race, needs to come from a white guy. So, Peter, maybe I should preach. <laughs> and he said, go for it. <laughs> be careful what you ask for. Here I am. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, one of the things I'm bringing up here with me is this profound sense of inadequacy. Uh, I'm, I'm not a preacher. I don't have training. I'm just a software engineer. What do I know? So bear with me. Um, and that's what I want to do today. I want to move that conversation forward. And it's going to get awkward again. Peter's already done a little bit of awkward, and I don't think anybody left yet, so I'll, I'll try this some more. But let's see what James has to say about all this. James is the favorite book in the Bible for me. It's very deep, but very practical. And for me, one of the themes that runs through the book is this notion of embodiment, of taking something that's real and abs uh, that's abstract and spiritual and making it real, concrete, personal, putting it out into the world. And he's given us a bunch of examples already. He's called us to fairness in the way that we treat different people of different social classes. He's called us to have our speech filled with goodness that flows out of our heart. He calls us to care for orphans and widows and the least among us, for people in need. And, and on and on, there's been a bunch of other examples. So one of the things I've been wondering about is one of our little mottos here at church, one of the things we've been hearing a lot about is this idea of safe and holy. What does it look like to embody that, to take that out into the world and make it real? Let's see. I'm just going to read this again. Thanks, Ben. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. But when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now, this is kind of funny because 
James has just spent chapter 3 telling us how we should fill our speech, our tongues, with gentle and compassionate speech for each other and remember that we're created in God's image. And then he dives into some pretty Old Testament language here about killers and murderers and arguments and quarrels and adultery. But that's kind of a picture of the world we're in. And it's a picture of what we turn into when we turn away from God and forget our identity in Christ. The problem isn't the stuff that we desire. It's not what we want. It's how we go about meeting our desires. Because once we've turned away from God, we have no recourse but to try and control our own world. We exercise power and control over the things around us, and we start treating people like things. And one of our best tools for controlling other people is our language. And all of those of you who are parents and who've tried to talk your kids into behaving correctly know what I'm talking about. It doesn't work very well. And this is what we do to each other. We manipulate, we cajole, we argue, we berate, we threaten. Ultimately, the logical end of that is to kill each other. Because if you're not complying with my desires and I'm not complying with yours, one of us is going to have to die. Fortunately, we don't always take this literally, but one of the things that we do a lot of is to start hurling insults at each other. And Jesus has told us that when you insult your brother, you might as well kill him. And if we don't do that, a lot of times what we do is we simply sever the relationship. We walk away, we destroy the connection, we kill each other, we kill our love. Or maybe we actually recognize that we are not God of the universe, that we need God to help us, so we cry out to God and ask Him to help us manipulate other people. And now we're not really worshiping God or serving Him. We're just trying to use God as another tool. And God's not having any of that either. We turn away from God like a cheating spouse. And James calls us adulterers for that. More Old Testament language. We're a mess. And how does God respond? With jealousy. Now there's a word with no positive connotations in our culture. At best, this reminds me of some really bad pop songs or some corny date movies. But for the most part, it reeks of bad relationships old trauma, stalkers, domestic violence. This is not a pretty word. And yet, it shows up in the Old Testament over and over and over again. Do not worship any other god. For the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous god in Exodus. How do we think about this? This is one of these words and concepts from the Old Testament that we're kind of embarrassed about sometimes. Let's think about who God is. And what is he jealous for? Think about creation, the world we live in. One of the things that has been blowing my mind these last few years is the discoveries that cosmologists are making about just exactly how vast beyond comprehension 
the universe actually is. Billions and billions of stars in a galaxy, billions of galaxies inside a galaxy cluster, more galaxy clusters in the universe than there are grains of sand on a beach. We, we just don't have brains that can really comprehend how large the universe is. But then we turn and look at, at creation right here on our, our planet. We look at our bodies. We look at our cells. And if you've seen computerized animations of individual cells and all of the proteins and molecules working together to be life, it is absolutely amazing. And the God who created all of this and sustains it moment by moment created all of this so that we could experience his love. The love that he has for him, for the Son, for the Spirit, that eternal, glorious love is what he created us to experience. And when we turn away from that, no wonder he's jealous. He wants us to thrive and love each other, and we fall for the world. And how does he respond? With grace. More grace. This is what the scripture says. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Now, God doesn't just give us what we want. He's not going to simply say, oh, here, have this thing that you've been manipulating me into giving you. That's not how God works. He's not going to cooperate with our self-destruction, our manipulation of each other, our pride and control. How do we embrace that grace? Where do we start? We need to do something that we hate doing. And it's another one of those ugly Old Testament words, submit. Verse 7, submit yourselves then to God. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Submit is a hard word. It really is the essence of what our proud souls hate about God about being creatures and not creators. It's a recognition that we need grace if we're going to get anywhere. But when we submit, when we accept our role as creator in the face, as creatures in the face of our creator God, it opens up our hearts to receive that grace. This grace isn't cheap. It cost Jesus the cross and it comes to us by his blood. But as we enter into this grace, if we keep that in mind, what it actually cost and how dark our hearts are, if we embrace that gloom and come to terms with our brokenness, the Spirit helps us work through this. We can't flinch. We can't minimize. We can't deflect. We can't displace or blame other people. We need to acknowledge the darkness in our heart and the pain that we've created for ourselves and in others, whether on purpose or accidentally. And once we've humbled, once we've come to terms 
with that brokenness. We make room for the Holy Spirit to lift us up. The Holy Spirit goes into those dark, broken corners and brings healing and restoration. And this is the most amazing thing for me. This isn't only for us as individuals. For us as a body, as a church, we are lifted up and given power to go out into the world to be a safe and holy present for people out there that need it so desperately. So, how do we apply this ark to our lives? What does this look like? If we're going to be safe and holy and embody that in the world, what happens? And this is one of the things I'm excited about here at the church is seeing some of the ways in which we are manifesting, we are embodying the gospel. It shapes our relationships. It shapes the way we spend money, our free time, our attitudes towards creation, our sense of mission. And each one of these areas is something that's worth talking about and focusing on and translating into action. But today, I specifically want to talk about race. Racial reconciliation, racial relations, and how we talk, relate, and act around something that's a really difficult, awkward conversation. Honestly, when I asked to speak about this, I knew it was going to be awkward and difficult, and the last few days have made it even more difficult. But I'm going to ask you to lean in, to bear with me, and to look for clarity. And for starters, to acknowledge that we are fundamentally a white church. And that even when I say the word white church, or if I start using words like black and Asian and Latino, this is setting off alarms. It sounds divisive. But it's not creating division. It's simply naming something that's already there and that we tend to want to ignore and walk away from. Because here's this thing that we white people do when you want to talk about race. In the words of the famous interstellar philosopher Jean-Luc Picard, shields up! Brace for impact! That's kind of the first reaction that non-white people get when they even bring up the subject around white people. Because we tend to get defensive. We deny that there's a problem, we flinch away, and even as the conversation is getting started, the other person feels, I, I haven't even said anything yet. And as the conversation progresses, we're tempted to become dismissive of what we're hearing. We ask for examples and then say that they're just anecdotes, or that you're being too sensitive, or that media and politicians are just making you fearful that you're imagining things. And slowly the conversation grinds to a halt. And the other person once again is reminded that white people live in some sort of alternate reality. The world that I live in is not the world they live in. And the white person says, I'm glad we had this conversation. And it's over. There's been no progress. 
David Foster Wallace has a story of three fish out in the lake. As the sun is coming up, one of the, old, the older fish swims by two younger fish and says, Hi, boys, how's the water? And swims on off. And the two younger fish look at each other and ask, What is water? Imagine trying to explain water to a fish. It's all they've ever known. It's their world. It's going to be a hard conversation to, to try to get them to imagine a world without water. And that's kind of the experience that not white people have when they're trying to explain this, this alternate reality that we live in. There's a name for this. It's called white privilege. Nobody left yet. Okay, good. Another difficult conversation. Back in 1989, a professor at Wellesley College called Peggy McIntosh wrote the paper that kind of crystallized this expression. She usually gets credit for this, but the fact is this basic idea has been floating around in the writings of African-American authors going back 100 years, and it wasn't until a white person invented a name for it that it actually penetrated the culture. And that right there is white privilege. It's a paper that's kind of worth reading. It's long and tedious, but it has some excerpts that are worth paying attention to. One of these is this word picture she paints to try to get it to help us understand what we're even talking about. She describes white privilege as an invisible knapsack, weightless, full of special provisions, maps, passports, code books, visas, clothes, tools, and blank checks that white people carry with them that helps them sail through life with an ease and comfort that people that aren't white don't experience. And by way of trying to illustrate this, she has a long, like two pages of specific examples of things that she's observed in her own life that demonstrate what it's like to be white in contrast to what somebody who's not white might experience. I've taken some time to go through and paraphrase some of her ideas and, and apply this to my life. So these are some of the examples of things I experience. So for starters, just a few examples. If I need to move to a new neighborhood, I can be fairly sure that my new neighbors will be pleasant or at least neutral to me. When I go shopping in my grungy weekend clothes, I don't worry about being followed or harassed by security. When I use checks and credit cards, I don't worry that people question, I don't worry about people questioning my financial reliability. I've done well in difficult situations but never been called a credit to my race. When I speak in public, I don't get told that I'm surprisingly articulate or that your English is really good. If my day or my week or my month is going badly, I don't have to ask myself if it's because of my race. Now here's this thing that happens. We white people, the first time I read through this list, and some of you might be thinking the same thing, really? Is that even real? Are you making this up? Is that even that big a deal? These seem like 
such small things? And do they really happen that often? And the answer is, it is real. And it adds up. It adds up to this alternate reality. There is a lot of pain out there. We heard about this thing called transference, where you're having a conversation with somebody, and all of a sudden the person reacts in what engineers call a nonlinear response. You say something about the dishwasher, and all of a sudden we're having an argument about the car with an intensity and a ferocity that seems completely disproportionate to what you brought up. This shows up in conversations about race a lot because there is a lot of pain out there. And out there in the world, there's a lot of noise and confusion and very useless, unhelpful talk. You ever walked into the middle of an argument? Get home from work or uh, walk into a conference room at the office and people are just going at each other, tooth and nail. And your first reaction is to want to back out the door and just walk away. Except the conversation we're talking about here is actually about us. And the most tempting thing to do is to walk away and I'm urging us to stay in the room and to actually engage. George Yancey is an African-American philosopher, professor at Emory University. Last year on Christmas Eve, he gave us a present. He wrote an essay in the New York Times called Dear White America. There's a link to this in the sermon notes. That'll be something you can go look at. I urge you to read the whole paper. It's only a couple of pages. It's humble, but it's incisive, and it's a very, very difficult thing to read. I put it down a couple of times. I wanted to rip it to shreds a couple of times, but it's indispensable. George Yancey makes several good points, but there's one thing in particular I, I would like to quote from this. He says, this letter is not asking for you to feel bad about yourself, to wallow in guilt. That is too easy. I'm asking you to tarry, to linger in the ways in which you perpetuate a racist society. Just sit there. When we sit with somebody who's grieving, a friend of ours who's lost a loved one, one of the things we're encouraged to do is to not try and say much, to simply be present. And that's kind of the feel of what I think he's talking about when he uses this word, tarry. The difference being, of course, is that in this case, the grief that we're tarrying with is grief that we have helped create. It's an echo of what we read in verse 9. Grieve, mourn, and wail on your way to being humbled and lifted. Or in James 1.19, where he reminds us that we need to be quick to listen and slow to speak, slow to anger. Just sit there.
We have this tendency to want to rush to fix things. And so there's three urges that we must resist as we tarry and just sit there. The first urge is to deflect, to make this about somebody else, not my problem, not my fault, not my generation, not my people. Why are you talking to me? Don't deflect. The second urge is to apologize. I'm so sorry for the life you've had to live. I'm so sorry for being white. I'm so sorry for... No. At best, it doesn't really help much. But most likely, it's just really our way of trying to manipulate our way out of the conversation because it's being difficult. And finally, resist the urge to offer empty comfort. There's a very wise refrigerator magnet I've seen that says, never in the history of relaxing has someone relaxed because they were told to relax. And this is kind of what James is telling us back in chapter 2. If, if somebody comes to you and they're in need, and you tell them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, but don't actually meet their need, that's useless. And most likely, in a conversation like this, there is nothing that you can actually do. So just sit there. Accept that there is broken trust. Accept that I am part of the problem. Accept that the way forward is difficult and unclear. Just sit there. This is the kind of grace that God is jealous to see in us. So, now what? What's next? How do we embody all of this? What do we do with it? How do we take it out into the world and make it real? I'm going to give you a few ideas of where to go with this. First thing is to own your reaction to what you're hearing here today. What you're hearing me say, what you've heard Peter say. I'm hoping that you're disagreeing with at least a few things. Because it's just me. What do I know? Maybe you're irritated. Maybe you're convicted. Maybe you're filled with a sense of hope that things are actually getting better. Whatever your response is, spend some time this afternoon, own that, pray over it, acknowledge it, journal it. The second thing is to talk it over. Talk it over with your spouse, your family, especially your children. There's a lot of noise and fear and confusion in the world these days, especially in the last 72 hours. And a lot of children are coming home from school confused and upset and fearful. And this needs to be a conversation you have with your children. Bring this up in your small group. Practice being safe and holy with each other. Practice absorbing transference. Watch somebody go nonlinear on you and stay in the room. Bring it up with friends at work. The third thing is to absorb. And by absorb, I mean be a sponge. Suck it up. And by suck it up, I mean suck it up. Be still and listen 
Somebody goes nonlinear on you like I just said, take that in. Think, ooh, this is happening. This is a real thing. They're calling me names even though I didn't say anything. Offer grace back. And finally, explore. Look at some of the resources in the sermon notes. Google some of the stuff I'm talking about. See what you can find. If you find anything is interesting, send it to me. I'm kentlotus at gmail.com. would love to hear what you're discovering, what you're learning. Travel. Go on one of our mission trips with the Nicholas Fund or with the Free Wheelchair Mission next spring. So, now there's, there's one more thing. So like Peter... I'm reluctant to bring up post-election politics today. I don't want to lose focus on the main point, which is race. And if and how each of us here chooses to engage politically in the weeks ahead is a really great conversation, but that's for another day. But there is one thing that I need to bring up because of events in the last few days. There has been a resurgence of overt, oppressive racism, misogyny, and sexism in our country. Now, we can have a conversation, hopefully not an argument, about the scope of what's been happening and the cause of it, but honestly, today, I don't care. It has to stop. And we here in our circle of influence, in our workplace, in our neighborhood, in our school, in our bus rides, when we're out walking our dog, we need to be alert and attentive and mindful of what's happening around us. And if we see the stuff going on, intimidation, disrespect, exclusion, violence, we must intervene. We have to step in, step up, act. We cannot stand by and just let it happen. We have to be a safe presence in the world. This is one of the essential embodiments of what it means to be a Christian, standing up for the weak and the oppressed. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Verse 17, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Folks, there's no going back. There's no crawling back into our little safe cave. There's only forward. God is jealous for us. He's jealous for our healing, for our maturity, in our mission. He's jealous to see his grace fill each of us, fill this place, this church, and our world. And what is that grace? It's that fierce, powerful love that created the world, sent Christ here to die for us, and fills us with the Holy Spirit. That fierce love is patient, it's kind, 
It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Will you pray with me? We humble ourselves before you, awed by your love. Holy Spirit, help us to understand the vastness and power of your love for us. Holy Spirit, search our hearts, find every dark and hurting corner, and bring your healing. Bring us to tears for all the suffering, fear, and confusion in the world. Help us to take your fierce love out into that world. In your name, amen.